are you ready for God's word? Yes. yes. All right. Well, we have a really serious message that, that we're, we're getting into. Um, most of David's second half of his life is super challenging. Therefore, it makes the, the messages challenging. And today you're going to see a principle that is, uh, that is as old as time. I mean, you just see it played out over and over and over in different novels, different, different uh, stories, different times. And it's the, it's, the, it's the principle or the lesson that we learn even in a story by J.R.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. How many of you remember that story? How many of you saw the movie, read the book? It's an amazing, amazing story. And he is a, a just superb author. You know, he, he had a lot of influence on C.S. Lewis and was instrumental in C.S. Lewis coming to the Lord. J.R.R. Tolkien, they were, they were peers. And so you have this, this Lord of the Rings uh, is all set up around handling the power or mishandling the power of this ring. This ring and how, what it did to people in that once they were they were captivated by the ring, they couldn't let it go. And it would just draw them and draw them and ultimately transform them into something hideous. It was it 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 proved to bring out what was really at the heart of every human, and that is not things that aren't good, right? And so today we're going to see that that power and popularity and prestige and all of these things are given to the king's sons. The main king's son that we're going to talk about here today is Absalom, and we're going to see how that ring of power, so to speak that is bestowed upon this son of the king, ultimately brings to the surface what's really there. It reveals his true character. And I'm going to challenge you today to compare and contrast King David with his son Absalom. And I'm going to ask you to challenge yourself and to say, do I gravitate more towards a David-type character, a David heart, or do I, do I find myself drifting towards an Absalom heart and qualities. Because the enemy doesn't want you to be a David. He wants you to be an Absalom. And, and the temptation is strong, especially in this world. And so as we compare and contrast these two characters, uh, I invite you to join with me. I've, enti uh, I've entitled this message very simply, Brutal Betrayal. Brutal betrayal. Now, also, I've included Absalom. And uh, the reason I included it, and, and we got to figure out why the program of the church keeps using small letters. Because I capitalized it here. But anyway, let's keep going. So, brutal betrayal of Absalom. Now, I want to show you kind of where the Bible describes this young man, this prince, this prince of the king. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 14 in verse 25, In all Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. Hello. The dude was good looking. Now let me ask you, do you think he knew it? You know, because when I read this, I always, I always wonder. I wonder if he knew he was good looking. Or is it like that country song? She don't know she's beautiful, right? Oh, she don't know she's beautiful. Don't act like you don't listen to country. We're in Texas, right? Um, never crossed her mind. I wonder if it ever crossed his mind. I think he knew. We're going to get more clues. Keep reading with me. He was... He was handsome in appearance. No one was as good looking as him. So he is the fairest in the land, right? From the top of his head to the soles of his feet, there was no blemish in him. What does that mean? He was picture perfect. He was the, perf the perfect specimen. 
but who's examining the bottom of his feet? I mean, that's a question, right? I don't know, but they said from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He's perfect. Whenever he cut his, the, the hair of his head, he used to cut it only once a year. When it became too heavy for him, watch this. He would weigh it, and it weighed, uh, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Now, I've read a lot of commentators on this, and the commentary says that it was somewhere between 3.5 pounds and, and 5 pounds. So up to 5 pounds, this hair. Come on, guys, this is impressive. Right? This is impressive. So Absalom is the second son of David. And if we're going to compare and contrast David to Absalom. Now, why do I say the second son of David? Because he's not destined to be king unless the first son, what? And he ends up killing him. We'll talk more about that in a second. But stay with me on this. He was the second son of David. He was born in Hebron. Hebron is important because he was raised in Hebron too. David ruled from Hebron for about seven and a half years before he conquered Jerusalem and moved his kingdom to Jerusalem. Some say even longer than that. So he has familiarity with that town of Hebron. That proves to be significant later. Stay with me on this. And uh, notice how much the Bible describes his appearance. It's right there. He, just, he goes on to say, it was too heavy for him. He had three sons and a daughter. It was born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar, and she became a beautiful woman. So he was beautiful. He was good looking. No blemish. Awesome hair. Now, I'm not just hating on the guy. Someone might say, you're just being jelly because you got no hair, and uh, this guy had a great head of hair. But I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to bring forth what I'm seeing in God's Word. Notice, God's Word is not emphasizing anything deeper than the skin. It's all surface. It's as if the Lord is trying to highlight something here. If you compare David's story, the Bible says he was ruddy. What is ruddy? I don't know, but it's not the handsomest in the whole land. It's something far less. He was ruddy and he had good eyes. Some might say, some translations say he had beautiful eyes. And I believe the Bible is speaking volumes here. The Bible is saying exactly what God said to the prophet. What did God say to the prophet Samuel? The world looks at the outer, but I look at the heart. After all, the eyes are the window of the soul. The eyes are the window of the soul. And when you look at David's eyes, they were beautiful. Why? Because they were reflecting what was inside. And what he had inside was a, he was a man after God's own heart. And here, his son is quite different. His son is all about the vanity. David was all about the character. But what's the deal with this hair? I mean, hair weighing five pounds? So I was reading on this, and some of the scholars believe that um, he more than likely would powder his hair. Back in the ancient times, they would powder their hair to, uh, to deal with pesky little lice and stuff like this. Um, they would also do it because... They didn't have the modern shower technology where they could just shower every single day and so they would keep it from, from, from smelling bad and that more than likely he, he would uh, powder it also with gold dust so that when he moved and when he, when he rode, there was a glimmer and a shine all around him. So what are we trying to say about Absalom compared to David. David, the Bible describes him as someone who is prudent, who loves the law of the Lord, who is trusted by God, who is honorable and a man of character, who loves the Lord, and yet Absalom, all we can get is that he's good looking. And that the Bible indicates David had substance while doesn't give any indication of Absalom's substance. Now, why are we spending so much time on Absalom today? Actually, we're going to spend the entire message on Absalom because the Bible gives him seven chapters. That's a lot of real estate in the Old Testament. 
Seven chapters. He gets more than what is dedicated to creation. Why? Because the Bible knows that this is the enemy's favorite play in his playbook. To bring forth the temptation of Absalom in our hearts. Because ultimately, this temptation destroys this young man and destroys a family. A family with it. And so the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. And so when we see seven chapters dedicated to Absalom, they were for our benefit. What kind of benefit? As a warning to us. A warning of what? A warning of what can happen and how the enemy likes to move. Watch. Verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That you don't fall into what? Into the temptation of Absalom. The Absalom's heart. You're going to see. You're going to see he was vain. He was proud, rebellious, bitter, and narcissistic. Now that's something that is thrown around a lot these days. This attitude of narcissism. But before we go to narcissism, let's hit some of the others. Like bitterness. How, how and where did this bitterness come from? See, we're, we're jumping in midstream, but if you were here last week, you know that Absalom took offense to something horrific that took place. Something horrific. What was it? It was the rape of his sister. And that kind of brutality, brutality hurts people, destroys family, and should never be tolerated. Never. Never, never, never. But there is a right and a wrong way to deal with evil. And Absalom chooses the wrong way. So what happens here? His older brother Amnon, who is in line to be king, he gets this uncontrollable lust for a half-sister, Tamar, which is Absalom's what? Sister, full sister. He devises a plan by which to isolate her in his bedroom and, and rape her. It's horrible, horrible. Shameful act on this, on this man who, who should have known better as a king's son. But you see that this ring of power brings out what's in there. What's in there. And so, so Absalom waits two full years waiting to see if the king will do anything. And in that time of waiting, what do you suppose is taking root in his heart? Well, the Bible tells us and shows us, I should say, through the story that what happened is he got a root of bitterness in his heart. Now, notice, bitterness can come from a number of places, but it usually comes at the, at the, at the thought of being wronged. There's two kinds of people in this world. There's the kind that are really wrong and the kind that think they're wronged, but but it doesn't matter who you are, at some point, you're going to have to face the temptation of bitterness. Of bitterness. And so here he felt he had been wronged and his sister had been wronged. And so he takes offense for his sister and he's waiting for the king to act. And the king doesn't act. And so we have to be careful for, with bitterness. And this is why Ephesians says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed by the day for the day of redemption. Now notice what is said right from the beginning. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that this thing we do called Christianity is only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit? You go, I don't know if that's true. Let me ask you this. How many of you have been just overwhelmed by the example of Jesus? Have you looked at Jesus' life and said, oh, this is no joke. This man is for real. I cannot live like him. Anyone? Would you raise your hand if you've ever had that thought and you feel that today? I, I cannot live like Jesus. In my, if, if you didn't raise your hand, more than likely you haven't truly understood how awesome Jesus is. Because he's not down here. He's, he's amazing. And when I look at that, I'm humbled and I go, Lord, I can't do this. And that's why he says, I sent you a helper. It's called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives you the power to live like Christ. And so here, yeah, come on, give him praise. Lord, it's because of you, not because of me. 
So in spite of me, you're working things out. This is why Paul says, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that I am convinced, I am persuaded that the good work you began, you are faithful to complete it, oh God. You are faithful to complete it. Why? Because your worker, the Holy Spirit, will bring it to an end. He'll present me on the day holy and blameless. But watch. So don't grieve that Holy Spirit because it is possible for you to grieve him, quench him, ignore him, push him aside, and take control. And notice the first warning after he says, you need the power of the Holy Spirit to live this life. He says, get rid of all bitterness. Hello. That's serious. He's saying bitterness will derail your Christian walk faster than anything. Bitterness. Watch this. Be kind and compassionate, verse 32, to one another, forgiving each other. So forgiveness can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you quench the Holy Spirit right there. You quench the Holy Spirit when you allow bitterness to take place. Absalom. You go, but, but how can he forgive such a horrendous act? Again, only by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you have this bitterness that's taking place. The, the Bible is, is warning against it. Watch what it says in the book of Hebrews. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up. Why? Because this bitter root is going to grow up and wreck his life. And this is exactly what the enemy wants to do in you and me. He wants to wreck our life and he uses bitterness to do it. You also see the characteristic of narcissism. Now this is something that's thrown around all the time. Everyone, have you noticed, is diagnosing someone else as narcissistic, which I think is funny because they are probably too. <laughs> you know, it takes one to, yeah, it takes one to know one. No, I don't think so, Pastor. That is, a, that is a legitimate diagnosis. Exactly. And I'm not a psychologist or a professional, but I can read from the Mayo Clinic parts of the definition, a disorder in which a person has an inflated sense of self-importance, self-centeredness, arrogant thinking and behavior. Arrogant thinking and behavior. That's pretty technical, but it's pretty broad at the same time. Can I just tell you, that's all of us. Think about this. That's what, it's, that's what it means to be human. To have an overinflated idea of how important we are. I, am I the only one that was this before I was saved? Where I thought it was all about me, myself, and I? Where I did things in a very selfish manner? Where I could tell you earnestly, the only reason I went to university was to live the American dream and to take care of myself. To have the 2.5 kids, the SUV, the beautiful wife, and to live for me until Jesus Christ, what? Changed it. He changed my life. You know what I find interesting also? The Mayo Clinic says that many professionals believe there is no cure for, there is no human cure for narcissism. Jesus Christ cures it in an instant if you give your life to him. You say, I don't know about this. No, it's called just pure selfishness. And, and the Bible says that you have to die to yourself. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some that are like extreme and, and, and are worthy of this diagnosis. But what I am saying is that we all have the potential to be this. If left to our own devices. And the cure is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The cure is the gospel message of Jesus Christ to say, you know what, Lord, I need to die to myself that I may live for you. That's why Jesus says, if any man care to be my disciple, he must die to him. Oh, but that's so hard to do. Get the Holy Spirit involved. He'll help. Amen. He'll help. And so you see Absalom in just a second is a real user of people. What do you mean he's a real user of people? Well, he uses servants to kill his brother, Amnon. He devises this plan by which he says, King, I want to invite your son, Amnon, to go with me, and we're going to celebrate the harvest time, and we're going to have a big celebration at shearing time. They were going to shear their sheep, 
And as, they, as we share, we're going to celebrate and give honor to God. And in that moment, he ordered his servants to kill his brother. Notice he didn't do it himself. Not only do you see him ordering his servants at that point, later on in the story, well, let's just talk about it now. He kills his brother and he takes off on the run to, to, uh, to Geshur. You go, what is he doing in a foreign land? Well, he would have felt comfortable there because his mother was the princess. She was the daughter of the king of Geshur. David had married her as a political alliance. And so he flees back that way. He waits there how long? Three years. Three years. And then he starts, he starts reaching out to Joab. Who is Joab? Joab is the, the head general in charge of David's army. And he starts reaching out to Joab. He starts reaching out to Joab, saying, Joab, speak to the king for me. Speak to the king for me. Notice, here he is again, using others instead of doing it himself. Why is he using others? Because the selfish attitude leads to that. Listen, later on, you're going to see him take a small army. And he doesn't even tell them the whole truth of what he's planning. He also uses servants to burn down Joab's fields when Joab gets tired of listening to him. And he says to Joab, didn't you hear me call you? You go, okay, okay, I'm, I'm having trouble following. Okay, this is what happens. He kills his brother. He takes off. Three years he's in Geshur. He's asking Joab to help him get back. Joab helps him talk. He talks to David and David says, let's bring my son back again. And this is where we pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 21. And the king said to Joab, behold, now I have done this thing. Go, therefore, bring the young man Absalom again. Now, that word again is interesting because it almost hearkens to the New Testament parable of Jesus Christ when he says what? My son who was dead is now alive again. What parable is that? It's the parable of the prodigal sons. Two sons, they're lost in different ways. One leaves, one stays. They're both lost. They both need to be introduced to the love of the Father. To the love of the Father. Now we talked about David's shortcomings last week and how he maybe failed in loving his sons. But here in his grace, he says, bring him back again. Notice what doesn't happen in comparison to Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. When the father said, bring the son back again in the parable in Luke, what did the son do when he came back? He threw himself on his father's mercy. What did he say? He said, father, forgive me for I have sinned not only against heaven, but against you, father, against you. What does Absalom not do? He petitions Joab to lobby for him. Once Joab lobbies for him and he comes back, there is no sense of forgiveness, I mean, of contrition. There is no sense of remorse. He's proud of what he did. The guy needed to die. He's dead and I'm in line to be king now. Oh, I just can't wait to be. I didn't know I could sing like that, did you? I'm just kidding. I, I don't sing very well. Um, so, so what's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on here. There is still some forgiveness that needs to take place. There is still some restoration and the bitterness, the bitter root is still growing. So David in the very couple of verses later says this, and the king said, let, uh, let him, my son, turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and did not see the king's face. So watch. Two years he waited for the king to act against his brother. Then he took actions into his own hands. After those two years, he was in Geshur three years. The petitions Joab to get him back to Jerusalem. But the king says he cannot come into my presence. So he doesn't see the king's face and he is outside the influence of David's leadership. He's outside that influence for two years. How many years is this? Seven years of bitterness just growing. 
how big do you think this bitterness has gotten? Come on, the lesson today is God says, don't let it take place. Deal with it. Get with the Holy Spirit. Start dealing with that or it will consume you. So he's at seven years. Now he calls Joab and says, Joab, I need your help again. I'm tired of this in limbo state. I want to be back in the palace where I belong. Why? Because he's thinking someday I'm going to be king. I can't have this. Joab ignores him. Why do you think Joab ignores him? Because he's probably like, dude, you got to get with your own daddy. I'm not going to be in the middle of this. It's not going to go good for the, how many of you know it doesn't go good for the messenger? So he's like, you got to deal with your own father. I'm out. He ignores him. So, he, so, so Absalom sends his servants to burn down Joab's fields. You know how dangerous that is, guys? How many of you lived through the, through the forest fires here? How many of you remember how scary that was? Let me tell you a story. We come home from church that Sunday. We're tired. We've preached three services. My wife and I, my children, we, we lay down for a nap, and I get a call from Elijah Burns. And he calls me. He's on the volunteer fire department. He says, Pastor Chris, I need you to listen to me very closely. You're going to have to evacuate, and you've got to call anybody you know as fast as possible because the, the, the fire has jumped 71 and is headed towards Tahitian Village. And this is what he said. He said, it's moving about 30 miles an hour or something like that. And he, and he said, and it doesn't stop at stop signs. It, it's, it's humming. So I remember calling uh, everyone I could in this one particular family lived down the road closer to the front of Tahitian. I lived in the back by the golf course. And so I call him and, and he doesn't answer. So I call his wife and I said, put put him on the phone, put my friend on the phone. So he puts him on the phone. She puts him on the phone. And I said, listen to me very carefully. I need you to go outside and, uh, because, or and I need you to evacuate and evacuate the babies. They had just had a little baby. And I said, evacuate the baby, get ready. Um, we need to leave now. There's a fire coming. He says, oh, there's always talk of fires. It's easy. It's all right. I said, go out the front door. Tell me what you see. I never forget. He opens the door. I can hear him in the, on the phone. You know, he's opening the door. He steps out. And I know what his, his house looks like. Long garage, so you have to kind of go around that corner to look towards the highway. I can tell he's walking, and he goes, oh, don't leave me. I don't know the back way out of Tahitian. I said, I won't leave you, but get here now. He told me he could see the flames, and they were coming. He could see the ashes falling on him, and all he could think of, it's going to take my family. And so we waited, we got our neighbors out, we got, you know what that was like. And this man willingly, because of his selfish, egotistical attitude, he burns down fields purposely. Joab shows up and says, what are you doing, bro? And you know what he says to him? Didn't you hear me call for you? I said, come. And you didn't come. Well, I got your attention, didn't I? He said, I need you to go to the king. And I need you to tell him he either reinstates me or kills me. Who is he to tell the king anything? Reinstate me or kill me, but I'm not going to do this thing we're doing anymore. So David brings him back. Still no forgiveness. Still no I'm sorry attitude or contrition. David kisses him and loves him, does what a father would do. And this is where we start to see it really, really get bad because the Bible says, David, now, now let, let me share one more thing. Parents, you, you, could you have a little time for this? If you forgive your child, but you keep him at arm's length and don't really forget it and put it behind you in a healthy way, they will burn something down. Mm, good preaching, pastor. Thank you. What do you mean they'll burn something down? They will burn something down to get your attention. So when you forgive, make sure you do it right. And say, no, you're going to be in my presence, and we're going to do it this way, and I see some bitterness in your heart. Let's work through that. Amen? And so he has this proud, judgmental spirit. Absalom is getting more and more proud and judgmental. I want you to pick this up, because right now we're going to read the verses. They're going to go really quick, but I want you to pick up all these lessons beforehand. He's proud and rebellious, 
And this proud, rebellious attitude makes him judgmental towards others, one being his father. I want you to understand, younger people, that when the enemy starts to tempt you with the temptation of Absalom, you're going to judge those older than you very, 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 very critically. And you're immediately going to think, I can do it better. I can do it better. And he says, if I were king, I would do this. Watch. Distrustful of authority. Well, my authority, David, mishandled the situation. And now because he mishandled it, I distrust all authority. And I'm, I put the emphasis on self-importance. It's all about me. I'm, I'm important in this situation, being that it's up to me to right the wrong. Who's it up to? Who did God, what did David say? David said, I don't have to fix Saul. Saul was an evil king trying to kill him. What did David say? I don't have to fix Saul. He's in God's hands. God will take care of Saul. All I have to do is take care of me and make sure I don't get off the path. I don't go off the rails. That I don't lose it on my end. But here he thinks he's too important. He takes matters into his own hands and he starts burning down the kingdom and creating civil war. He's deceitful, treacherous, manipulative, underhanded, and self-promoting. This is what you're going to see in just a second. Here we go. His theme song is, I just can't wait to be king. If I were king. Now I want you to notice his self-promotion is false humility, flattery, and fault-finding. False humility, flattery, and fault-finding. When I show you these lists like this, it's easy to pick them up. It's not so easy when you're in the middle of the narrative. When you're living it. And there's an Absalom in your presence or when the enemy is tempting you to be an Absalom. So watch. Here we go. Let's finish. Treason is where it ends up. Treason. Despicable treachery. You're going to see underhanded hiddenness, agendas, strategies, ambitions, hate, hatred, content, contempt, excuse me, alliances and revenge. And so in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. Notice what the Bible is emphasizing. He provided himself, whereas with David, God provided. Right? He sends the 50 men ahead of him. Why? Because the 50 men were supposed to ensure that he was received a certain way. When warriors show up in the town announcing the prince coming, they tell you on your knees, on your face, honor the prince, honor the prince. This is what this is about. He would get up early in the morning and he would stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate whenever anyone would come with a complaint and a pla- to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? Where are you from? If you're putting in a Texas type scenario, you would say, what county are you from? Oh, you're from Harris County. I know Harris County. Tough place to be from. H-Town, Astros. Let's go, baby, Astros. Right? He was calling out. He was trying to find common ground. But why would he ask, where are you from? Why would you ask, where are you from? Come on, stay with me on this. Well, if if your ultimate plan is to have a coup and to raise an army against the king, you want to stand there long enough to where you have, what, representation and followers in every state of the union. I've got some folks from Texas. I've got some folks from Florida. I've got some folks from California. I've got some folks from Arkansas, Louisiana, up in the northwest, in the northeast, right? Northwest. And I've got folks all over the place. And I stay in contact with them. And watch what he would say to them. He would say this. Where are you from? They answered, your servant is from the house of the tribes of Israel. So they would tell him what tribe they were from. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper. Your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would say, if only I were appointed judge in the land. Now, does he want to be judge or does he want to be king? He wants to be king. 
Now watch. He says, then everyone who has a complaint or a case would come to me and I would see that they would receive justice. If, if I were there, if I were king, I would do it this way. Isn't it interesting how he's undermining his own father? Watch. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And so he would, he'd, no, 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 don't get up. Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. And then he would kiss him. What is that about? False humility. That's false humility. See, I'm, I highlighted it before, but have you ever been in the temptation in the presence of an Absalom where they're like, they say, but, and, and you go, how did I not see it? They seem so humble. It's false humility for the sake of gaining your trust. Watch. And flattery starts to flatter them, starts to kiss them and show them that, that they're important. Absalom behaved in this way towards all of Israel who came to the king asking for justice, and so he stole the hearts of the people. What was he after? He wanted the hearts of the people. Notice, David was after God's own heart. Absalom was after the people's heart. This is really, really interesting because it's different from the temptation of Jezebel or the spirit of Jezebel. The spirit of Jezebel goes after the heart of the king. Absalom goes after the heart of the people. It's, it's, it's different. Jezebel wants to usurp the king's power, wants to be queen. Absalom wants to be king. And so here you have this thing that's taking place. Then Absalom sends secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, remember, where are you from? Now it's been four years. He asks David to let him go to Hebron. Hebron, he needs to be away from David so that now he needed to be close to David to, to what? Undermine him. But now that the undermining has taken place, now he needs a little space so he can spring his plan into action. And the way it goes is this. He sends messengers. As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem accompanied him. Now watch, they had, not, they had been invited as guests and went quite innocently knowing nothing about what was going to happen. He's using them, he's manipulating them, is he not? This is where this, this temptation ultimately leads to manipulation. You go, well, pastor, does it really happen? As I finish the story, I want to tell you how it happens. So I heard a story of a pastor who had a heart for the next generation. This really spoke to me because I have a heart for the next generation. I've always had a heart for the next generation. And so as he had a heart for the next generation, a young man came up and said, Pastor, I feel led to be your youth pastor. I have a heart for the young, next generation just like you. And so he named him youth pastor. It wasn't long before the youth group was growing. He came to him and he says, I just feel in my heart I, I should be I should be used in a greater capacity. I think I should be like an associate of some sort. I'd like to be your associate. So then he named him associate. And then he said, not only am I growing and the Lord is blessing, but I think our church is missing something. We should have a contemporary kind of uh, different type of service on Saturday night with a different feel. And I think I should be the one to lead it. And so the pastor put him in that capacity. And as he started to grow that service, he started to grow it in a very underhanded way he would go to Sunday morning and he would pick the people he wanted to flatter and approach and he would say I noticed your vibe you have such a cool energetic youthful vibe and and you you see things in a fresh um very progressive way and yet you are strong in God's word we could sure use you in Saturday night so as he grew his Saturday night numbers and dwindled the Sunday morning numbers, he came to the pastor and said, I think we should trade services. I should move my group to Sunday morning and you move your group to, to Saturday night. At which point then he gained the rest of the influence over the leaders and came and asked for the pastor's resignation. They asked the pastor, how did that end? He said, well, I left, much like David left. 
See, what happens is he, claims, he, he proclaims himself king in Hebron. He gathers all of these people into an army and he marches on Jerusalem. When David hears that he's coming, he escapes with his life. His wives and his family, he leaves some concubines behind. Those are the concubines that Absalom ends up sleeping with to disgrace his father. Because he takes over Jerusalem as David has to leave humiliated, barefooted. He, he escapes with his life. Now, now stay with me on this. Um, Absalom thinks everything is going good, but David had two advisors. One advisor was a fithel, uh, a hithel fell, if I'm saying that right. Uh, I'm just going to call him Brother A. And Ashai was another advisor. We'll call him Brother H. Ashai came to David and said, um, David, I'm going to follow you wherever. He says, there's no need for me to have everyone outside of Jerusalem. I need you more being a good counsel to my son and to the people in Jerusalem and looking after, looking after our nation. So he sends Brother H back. But he hears that Brother A has been approached by Absalom. It's right there. And so the conspiracy gained strength as he talked this brother into being his advisor. So one is good, one turns bad. Brother A turns bad, so David prays, Lord, confuse the advice that this man gives my son. Influence it. Do what you have to do, Lord, but I know you've called me to be king. Meanwhile, this brother A gives Absalom good advice. Says, go kill David while he's on the run and you have the upper hand. Kill him now. Get him. He could have done it. But God was at work. Why? Because God honors your prayers when you pray. Come on now. Somebody needs to get excited about that. God will listen to my prayers, even in the worst times. And so Brother H, who David sent back, is there like Johnny on the spot. And God is working, so Absalom says, that sounds like good advice, but I need to make sure, and asks Brother H for his advice. Brother H says, that's a horrible plan. You know how tough your dad can be. You know the rumors of how he fights like there's never been a warrior, and his men fight like crazy. You don't want to go at him that way. You want to make sure, and he appeals to his selfish attitude. You need to present yourself as a real king. Gather a huge army and go out in strength riding with them. He does that very thing, gives David time to organize himself and to meet him on the battlefield. Meanwhile, as he's riding, he gets caught in a branch. That beautiful hair of his gets caught in a branch overhead. He's dangling there. Now, you know that's embarrassing when you get caught. It's even more embarrassing when your mule or your horse leaves you and leaves you there. David's men see it. They go tell Joab. Joab comes and finishes the job. Even though David had told him not to, he does it because he knows the king has a weak spot for this treacherous son, and he dealt with it. We'll get into that later. Absalom is dead. The king begins to mourn him and cry over him and cry over him, so much so that he discourages his troops, the troops that stuck with him through this coup, this coup d'etat and this treachery, so much so that Joab says, I've had enough of this drama, goes and tells the king, you need to stop this nonsense. Go encourage your troops, for they feel disrespected and they feel like they let you down even though they gave everything to defend you. And if you don't encourage them, they won't be left by mourning. So David stops mourning his son. He gathers himself. He goes and tells his troops, good job, and the kingdom marches on. But can I go back to my story about the pastor who, did, who was having a similar problem? He left. The young man takes over the church six years later. It crashes and burns, and the church is no longer there. Why? 
Because at the end of the day, it's about honor. Honor. The Bible says, honor your father and your mother. Come on, younger generation. Oh, that old tired thing. See, America has taught us to let go of the past and to always believe the present gets better because you are better. No, you're only better when you learn from the past. But that's not what evolution says. Evolution says that we are evolving into greater and greater and greater. Bible says, learn from your father and your mother and honor them. Honor them. Now watch what the Bible promises you. This is the first commandment with a promise. This is where God's promises start. Start with honor. So that it may go well with you. So that you might have God's blessing. And you might have a long, prosperous life. Who wants to prosper? Who wants to have a long life? When you dishonor your spiritual authority, when you dishonor your physical authority, when you dishonor your boss and try to start a job that way, it will end quickly. Why? Because God said there won't be long life on the earth when you do it opposite of what he has prescribed. David had a long life. He reigned in peace. Absalom died quickly. You're going to see as we go through the kings even, or if you read through the kings, those that dishonored this principle died quickly. Those that honored this principle lived. It just shows. Let me give you another example real quick. You got some time? This will go real quick. So I'm a young pastor. Foundation's doing really well. I, got a, I get a young man comes from another church. He comes from First Baptist Church. And uh, he says, Pastor, can I have a meeting with you? I want to know what the secret was to you planting foundation. You seem to have done well, and I want to follow in those footsteps. I said, perfect, come on. So we went out to lunch, and he tells me, I have 50 to 70 folks ready to go start a church with me. I said, wow, that's amazing. That's really good. I think you'll do good. I said, tell me more about it. He says, well, they're totally ticked at the pastor at First Baptist and we've got three deacons and they wrote these nasty letters and we've gathered this group and we're about to walk out and I'm going to be their pastor. Can I tell you, this is the only time that I have seen the temptation of Absalom mixed with the spirit of Jezebel. Had this, this evil acting individual, I'm not saying the individual was evil, they were acting evil, who was pushing him to start this, why? Because they were trying to usurp his power before they even started, his influence. You be an Absalom, and I'm going to be the Jezebel standing right next to you, leading with you, and ultimately leading over you. It was, it was bizarre. So I tell the young man, I said, what do you think you need more than anything else in this world? He goes, he says, well, to start a church. I said, okay, let's take it from that angle, to start a church. He said, I need people. I got people. And we're raising our, they're holding back their tithe so that they can tithe when we come together. Ooh, I said, you're going after the ABCs of church planting, I guess. <laughs> uh, attendance, buildings, and cash. No, you don't need that. What do you need? Come on, what do you need? You need God's blessing right here so that it may go well with you. You need God's blessing. If God blesses you, people will come. Money will come. Buildings will come. You need God's blessing. Just, just go with God's blessing. This isn't the way to do it. He said, this is what I would do. I said, I said, rebuke these guys. Go humble yourself with your pastor. Tell him you've done wrong and tell him you want his blessing. And if you, he wants you to stay, you stay. If he, if he launches you out as a church plant with a real blessing from him, and he may say, you need to be here a year. You may be, you need to be here two years. We need to restore over this. Whatever he decides, that's what you need to subject, uh, submit yourself to. He says, will you go with me? Oh, man, you're making this difficult. So we call up, we sit down with Dr. Edge. To this day, Dr. Edge is a good friend of mine. I don't say that to impress you, but just to impress upon you that just God was leading. God was leading. I said, Dr. Edge, this is what's taking place. And we just laid it out. And, and, and we said, and, and Stephen wants to say I'm sorry. I want to say I'm sorry because I don't want to be in this mess. I don't. And I don't want these people and I don't want none of that. I just, I just feel like God was just doing a good thing with the, with the little folks he was gathering for us, amen? And, uh, and, and he says, no, there's peace. And he prayed over us, and he, then he looked at Stephen, Stephen Hellman. I don't know if you guys know him. He's a good friend of mine. 
He looks at Stephen and he says, I get the sense you want to work with Pastor Chris. You, your hearts line up better. You have my blessing. And so we took the blessing and we started working together. Sometime later, we commissioned him out to Connecticut. Then sometime later, he wanted to come back to Bastrop. I get a call from Calvary, uh, Calvary Baptist here in, in town. It says, I want a reference for Stephen Hellerman. I said, he's one of the finest guys I know. Well, what would you say if we're thinking of hiring him as our pastor? I would say amazing because you're going to get a great man of God. And um, at least that I know. And I'll tell you something else. If I had room on my staff, we wouldn't be talking. Because I'd hire him and y'all would still be looking for a pastor. <laughs> so God used him to grow that church. And I can tell you that there were many times when I'd call somebody up after they visit here and they go, hey, have you guys found a good church? They said, Pastor, we love it. We're going to, to Calvary Baptist. And sometimes people would come from Calvary Baptist to Foundation and we would just grow the kingdom of God. Why do I tell you that? Because when there's honor, then there's God's blessing. But when there isn't honor, then things fall apart. You might be here today and you might be saying, Pastor, how should I apply this? Search your heart and see if the enemy is trying to bring forth some of those little things that he started early on with Absalom. Remember, he took 11 years to grow these attitudes up. Don't let it go even one minute. Before you leave today, just, just say, Lord, and that's what I say before you. Father, give me a forgiving heart. Let your Holy Spirit lead within me. God, let me honor you and honor your church. And let me, Lord, operate under a culture of honor that I may be well with me and go long in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, I love you. As you pray, would you just say before the Lord, Holy Spirit, help me be the man or the woman you've called me to be. I don't believe in fairy tales. Lord, I want to be a David. I want to walk in the way of Jesus Christ. I know it's hard. But Lord, I do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Until you return. Amen. Church, I love you. Have a great, great week. I've got a promise I can hold. In the middle of the struggle. God, if you said you'll perform. Be how I want you to. But here's what I do I'm gonna wait on you. I'm gonna wait on you. I've tasted your good.